every Sunday morning. Um, out of respect and reverence for God's Word, we, we stand. So I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me as we read. Matthew chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 24 through 42. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So I have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet is because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he by no means will lose his reward. You may be seated. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. <clears throat> we are, as Jack said, in Matthew chapter 10, and uh, I'm not going to have a ton of time to do very much review. I have been doing some review, uh, but I don't have much time today or else all we would do is just review. And at the end, I would pray and we wouldn't get to do any sermon. So um, we are in the fifth week of five weeks on a little series called Compassion and Commission, um, which was the last few verses of chapter 9 in Matthew, all the way through chapter 10. And so we've been looking at the compassion um, that Jesus has for lost souls. And then after that, he sends, he gives some instructions for the rest of chapter 10, telling them how to live a life of mission based on that compassion. And we've been told how to live this life of mission. And we've looked at a lot of things. And so <clears throat> I encourage you, if you want uh, a little bit of a review on that, if you just go to iTunes and listen to last week's, like the first Five or ten minutes or so, I, I kind of do a review, and I'm just—I don't have time today. I wish I did, um, but there is one thing I do have to review a little bit, which is la- just last week's sermon. Uh, the way it w- worked last week is we started at verse 24 in chapter 10, and we're going through 42. And there's there's nine things I wanted us to see in uh, in this particular sermon. Except last week I only did four out of the nine, so we're kind of picking up in the middle, uh, starting at number five, and we're going to go through uh, all nine today. So 
I'm going to be starting at, at number five. So I'm going to I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do a little bit of review of just those four really fast from last week, and then we're going to do five through nine today. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us that you've given to us in Christ. That's um, most demonstrated for us at the cross, where you were willingly putting forward your perfect son as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer of our sin. He was perfect and did not deserve any wrath whatsoever. But he stood in our place and all the wrath that was due to us, that was deserved to be on us, he took as a perfect sacrifice for us, substituting himself for us. So now we don't have to receive it at all. Instead, you've given us all of his righteousness imputed into us. And when you see us, you see the perfect life he lived, the perfect law-keeping life, the perfect obedience that he lived, that is given to us, imputed to us. And all of our sin was imputed to him. And all the wrath was put on him. And now, God, we get to live in perfect relationship with you because of that. What a glorious message. What a great Um, Just an amazing piece of news to hear that the God of the universe who was angry because of our sin, our willing disobedience is no longer angry with us, no longer against us, but for us and calls us his sons, calls us his daughters because he gave his own son. What a great message. What, What an amazing thought. And so, God, as we. Think on this message that you've given to us as your children to now go tell other people. As we look at the way we're supposed to do it, the way the life of this missionary is supposed to be lived out. Would you please, Father, be kind to us, be compassionate to us, inspire us to want to do that. Help us see that we were once lost and realize this amazing love you've given to us. And give us the compassion for other people that we want to extend it to other people. May the gospel, the good news, never grow old to us, never become ordinary, but always be extraordinary. Thank you for all of your blessings that you've given to us. Be with our time now, Father, and would you please just move me out of the way. I don't, I don't want to be in your way of anything you're doing. Speak through me powerfully. Give me passion and compassion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how are y'all doing for Christmas? Got all your stuff? Um, one of the things, you're like, oh no. Um, well, I've heard on the news yesterday that they're going to do even more sales on the 24th. So, if you go out on, on the 24th, um, after, of course, our Christmas Eve service, or before, here you're going to get more deals that day. But, um, as a parent who has four children... Um, one of the things I've realized is <clears throat> if we want to buy four children things for Christmas and they're all, and all their birthdays are in the first three months, uh, right after that, we've got to hit the sales. We got to get black Friday and things like that. We got to go out with the crazies that go out at midnight and scratch people and poke each other and pull hair and cuss. And I'm, I'm, I'm not over exaggerating. This is actually what happened on black Friday when Christian and I were out. And, um, so this was just kind of a natural part of being a parent. You have to endure Insanity. Um, another another kind of comparison I can use is is uh, whenever well as a parent you have to deal. This is a natural outworking of being a parent is is going out and, and braving these kinds of things. Another another comparison is uh, once I was 
um, in college a while back. I, w- I used to go to Charleston Southern. Before that, I was at USC, uh, University of South Carolina, the USC. And whenever I was there, um, one of my friends, he had a car that was down in Orlando and he needed me to, to uh, take him halfway to Orlando. And his parents were coming to Orlando uh, halfway and we were going to meet. And then he was going to get his car and go back. And I was thinking, God must be like really happy that I'm such a kind person that I would use all my parents' gas money to drive my friend down <laughs> and get his car and come back. And so we were driving back and it was like two o'clock in the morning and we were both like <clears throat> needing to use the bathroom. And so we, we came up to a ramp um, and... There was a, uh, you could see like four miles on both sides and it was dark and nobody was coming. So we kind of Hollywooded that stop sign at like two in the morning. That just means we didn't stop. And so um, we both got pulled over by a cop. Uh, when no one was coming. And so we both got uh, tickets now because I was in the state of South Carolina. I got a four point ticket. He was from Florida. I don't know what happened to him. Um, just a few days later, I thought it would be a great idea since I was on a good roll of being such a great driver to run a stoplight. Um, and I found out that those don't get reduced either. That, that was also four points. And then just a few days later, I got a speeding ticket um, where I did get that reduced from four to two. So I had 10 points. I accumulated 10 points on my license in the matter of, you know, a week or so. And I had this awesome job ahead of me getting to go tell my parents that I had accumulated 10 points on my license and you only get 12 before you lose your license. Um, and then I had to go to this, this Tuesday, Thursday night driving class and just, if you've ever been, which hopefully none of you have, the people in there are just, you know, remarkable. They are remarkable people that are in that class. And I felt well, I was part of it too. So what am I saying? So anyway, um, it was just an amazing little experience that I had. But what, the reason why all that happened was because I was a terrible driver. Um, I had probably been pulled. I was. I'm not anymore. I met Christy and she, she straightened me out. But from about 15 to about 21, those six years, I probably got pulled over roughly 20 times. Um, I, I most of the time was able to, to talk my way out of it, uh, get a get a get some kind of warning or anything. But the reason why I kept getting pulled over was because I was an absolutely horrible driver. The natural outworkings of being a terrible driver was that I was going to get frequently pulled over. And it finally caught up to me in the 10 point thing where my thought my parents were going to um, put me in the hospital and I wasn't going to get to drive anymore anyway. Um, but <clears throat> my point is this, these are the natural outworkings of who I was at this time. I was a, a terrible driver. The natural outworkings is that I'm going to get pulled frequently. Um, now the question I want us to think about is if we are believers in Jesus and we've been told that Jesus came to save sinners, we told that in Matthew nine thirteen, and then as he dies in Matthew um, before he, after he dies and is resurrected, before he's going, ascending into heaven in Matthew 28, he tells us all authority has been given to him and that we're now to go make disciples. And he's told us as missionaries. And since we're, we know that if you're in Christ, you're a Christian. And since you're a Christian, you're supposed to live a life on mission, which means you're supposed to. There's no like, do I get to tell people about Jesus? Do I have to? Or I can just go the other way and just be saved and not do anything. There is, that doesn't exist. As Christians, we're all supposed to, no matter what, tell people about Jesus. Since that's the case, if you're in Christ, are the natural outworkings of your life, as you're living your life, manifesting themselves into living this out as a missionary, that I was a terrible driver. What happened is <laughs> I got pulled all the time. If we're a Christian, the natural outworkings that we're supposed to, that's supposed to happening as we're walking through life is we're supposed to frequently tell people about Jesus. People shall, should meet Jesus. Now, the number of that depends obviously on the sovereignty of God. I, I'm not going to, you can't save people. God saves people, but you should see people coming to Christ in some different way.
ways, whether it's, you know, Billy Graham, mega mounts, or just, you know, one or two in your life. You should, the natural outworkings of you who are called on mission, who have been told by Jesus that you're supposed to go make disciples is that you should have things happening in your life where you are telling people about Christ. And if you're doing that, what we're going to see right here are some things might happen to you. As a Christian who's living a life on mission. And these things that are going to happen to you are not to scare you and make you run away and say, well, that sounds terrible. Forget that. I'm going to switch back over to the no do something stage. Um, Instead, we're supposed to realize that these things are just normal happenings as we're naturally outworking ourselves as Christians. These normal things are supposed to happen to us, Um, although they might not necessarily be things we want or desire. So. I'm going to review the last four, and these are, I I titled this last week, Nine Characteristics of a Missionary. And this is just what I'm talking about. These nine characteristics of a missionary are the things that we should expect as missionaries of Jesus, um, as we're telling people about Christ, that we should expect happening to us. We should expect these things happening to us or being in our thoughts or happening in our lives. Um, So let me go ahead and do a quick review of some of these things uh, today. The first one that we saw is, uh, and, and by the way, just so we can understand one thing, one other thing, um, 24 through 42 is the second half of chapter 10. Um, but all of chapter 10 is Jesus. All of chapter 10 is Jesus telling his disciples, now it's the time to go live as missionaries. And when he's doing this, Spurgeon calls this last little section of 24 through 42, uh, the king cheering his champions. And so as we've heard this first part about how we're supposed to live a life of mission, the second part of chapter 10, where we're like, whew, I'm starting to hear at the very end of or at verse 23, it says, when they persecute you in one town. Oh, no, you're telling me I'm going to be persecuted. This is making me a little bit nervous. And we know that those kinds of feelings are going to start happening in your life as a person who's following Christ. All of a sudden you start telling people about Jesus and they're going to persecute you. You're naturally going to be a little bit fearful when they persecute you. Spurgeon titles this next part after that, the cheering of his champions. Jesus knows that's going to happen. And Jesus is trying to encourage you. You're his champions. You're his missionaries. You are the plan to tell the the gospel to the nations. He's cheering you. Don't be fearful. Don't be scared. I'm going to encourage you and give you the boldness. I'm going to give you the power of the spirit to go out and live this life of mission. So he's cheering us on. And so we saw nine characteristics from 24 through 42. And I want to do a little bit of review up to number five. And then today we'll start at number five. And the first one we saw was right there in 24 and 25 where it says the missionary knows that he will never be greater than Jesus. We see a disciple is not above his teacher. Everything that we do in our life, we're supposed to always remember that um, we are not called to be greater than Christ. Instead, he's always called to be the greatest um, person in our life whom we live our lives for. Everything we do is for his glory and not our own. That's that's basically a, a summation of the first one. The second thing we saw is in verse 26, um, it says, have no fear of nothing's going to be, uh, everything's going to be covered. That's revealed or going to be revealed. That's covered right now. What we saw is that's kind of some escalate. Es- uh, I can't say the word right now. Escalatical language. I'm not saying it right. Uh, language revealing in times eschatological. That's it. Eschatological language. It's just meaning, um, kind of language that's being used as talking about in times like revelation. Um, and what it's saying here is the second thing is that, uh, the missionary knows that, one day, all wrongs will be, against him will be vindicated. So we know that there's things being covered right now. There's things that are being hidden right now. But one day, final vindication is coming. But we don't rest and say, so when we're persecuted, we don't say, 
vindication's coming to you, my friend. I'm not going to tell you anything about Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to wait for that to happen. Instead, we just trust the Lord that people that persecute us, he will deal with or has dealt with already by, by putting his son on the cross for them. And we just tell them the gospel and pray that they get saved. But we know the persecution's coming. Again, this is kind of all in that persecution uh, kind of mindset things that are coming. The third thing that we saw last week is that the missionary does not fear because you will be called one day to declare it from the housetops. And that came straight from um, verse 27 where he tells them that everything I tell you right now, you're going to proclaim it on the housetops. And we talked about what's your housetop? It, you have a platform that God's given you to talk about Jesus. Where is it? Your school, your work, your job, your family, whatever. What is your housetop? You can't be fearful about persecution or else you'll never use that platform. So the missionary knows that I can't fear because whatever platform he's given me to talk about him, I have to, I'm going to be called on to declare him. And so I have to not be fearful. And then the finally fourth one from last week that we saw was from verse 28. Um, and it says, do not fear those who kill the body. But cannot kill the soul, rather feel him, fear him, that's Jesus, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And what we saw is the missionary does not fear because death is not final. It feels final. It feels final, but it's not final. They may kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And so what we saw last week is this. All they can do is kill us physically. But all that does is put us face to face with our king even faster. Um, and some of us may be called to lay down our lives sacrificially for the advancement of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, the way it's going to happen more than likely today in the most unreached people groups is um, Christians will have to give their lives sacrificially. There's, there's just no other way. It's th- these other pl- these places in the 1040 window and, and if some nations are so unreached, so unreached that and they they despise Christians so much. That there will be some that are called, but we know this precious promise from Psalm one sixteen fifteen: "Precious in the sight um, are the those who are martyrs for the Lord." So that's where we are right now. Is uh, point four through, and so now we're going to start up right here in twenty nine and twenty nine through forty two is where we're going to see these last five <clears throat> characteristics of a missionary. Now, if you remember from last week. Uh, 26, starting right there at verse 26, down through 31, that little section is where Jesus is talking about um, not being fearful. He just told us that we're going to be persecuted there in verse 24. And so based on the fact that persecution is going to come, Jesus knows that you and I, when we hear that, we get a little fearful. And so he knows that we're going to be fearful. So he's going to address that fear in your life. He's going to say, I know that persecution scares you. And so in verse 26 down to verse 31, he's going to address this fear that we might have, which is completely rational. Don't feel like that's irrational that you would feel fearful of persecution. It's completely rational. And Jesus is trying to address those those fears that you might have and say, you don't need to fear because. And so we saw those things that you're what you're going to be claiming. Called to proclaim it from the housetops. You don't need to fear because all they can do is kill your body. They can't kill your soul. I can kill your body and soul, but they can't. And so you're under my care. And so now we're coming into verse 29. And here's another reason why you shouldn't fear. And we're going to see this, how this applies to a missionary. Verse 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now, obviously, they didn't say penny back then. They said this word, a Syrian, which is just considered a very small, small amount of money. It's one sixteenth of a day's wage. So half an hour. 
half an hour's wage, whatever that is. You know, inflation's made it really high now. But um, anyway, so he's saying two little sparrows are sold for something, an Assyrian. Basically, what he's trying to say is these two sparrows are sold for something really small. These two things are both extremely small and seemingly very insignificant things. Two sparrows, an Assyrian. And he says they're not two sparrows. Sold for a penny and not one of them, notice this, will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, Matthew is employing the word father here, Abba. This is, again, not a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe God. So when he's using this word Abba, he's talking about the intimacy in which now God is dealing with his people. He used to not, he never used that word. We use the word like Yahweh and Adonai and things like Lord and things like that. Um, but now we're using this word Abba, Father, when we're talking about God. And so we can already see that he's wanting us to see there's an intimacy involved. And in the, in the whole verse we're seeing that makes sense because he's saying, in 29, these things are insignificant, seemingly, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. I, Abba Father, am intimately involved in seemingly insignificant things like sparrows. And look what it says in 30. Look how intimately he involved is he is involved in your life. 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This is how deeply your Abba Father knows you. He knows all the numbers of hairs that are on your head. Some of you, that's less now. And and I'm going to join you there, I'm sure, one day. But some of you, you know, you got these mops on your head. But he knows all that. He knows you deeply and intimately. And so, based on all that, look what he says in 31. Fear not, therefore. And look at this. You are of more value than any sparrows. If I take care of birds, I'm absolutely going to take care of you. This is the same argument he makes in Matthew chapter six. When we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, um, it's called an, uh, let me see, I wrote it down. It's kind of a crazy word, an offertoriority argument, offertoriori argument. And it's just basically saying, if I take care of little things, I'm God and I take care of tiny, insignificant, seemingly insignificant things. Well, then you who are man, which are much more important than a bird, well, this, it makes perfect sense that I would take care of you. Absolute perfect sense that I would take even more care of you. And that's why he says in 30, I know the numbers of hairs on your head. That's how I'm your Abba Father. And so the fifth thing we see from this is the missionary does not fear because they know they're under the care of a sovereign father. And remember that word father is important. It's Abba. It's intimacy that he's using right here under the sovereign care of a father who loves them. Even when they are vilely persecuted, even when they are vilely persecuted, he's telling you, don't be fearful because I love you more deeply than you can ever imagine. Now, verse 32, he's going to start something new. Like I said, 26 through 31, he's addressing this fear. Verse 32, when he's, that was about missionaries. And now he's going to continue talking about missionaries, but it's going to be a little bit different kind of feel now. 32 down through 39 He's going to talk about still being a missionary, but now it's going to feel more in the realms and the categories of discipleship and what that looks like as a disciple of Jesus. Um, So look what he says here in verse 32. He says, so now this word, so we also see that in 26. And that's how I know he's changing categories on us. So in 26, this is the exact same word. Therefore, um, just translated as so forth in the ESV. And he's going to say that so in 32 again. So he's he's switching thoughts a little bit. So and then we see this. Everyone who acknowledges me before men. I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I also would deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is pretty striking language. Because there's been times where the denying of the Father hasn't been outright in my life, in maybe yours. You ha- if someone hasn't said, are you a Christian? You haven't said, no. But you know that there's been times where someone needed to hear the gospel and you just didn't say anything. And this is a form of denying. They didn't ask you and you didn't say no, but at least you know they needed to hear and you just didn't say anything. It was kind of the, I didn't do anything. So this is pretty striking language for us when we hear this. And so it can definitely, at least in my heart, you know, start like getting a little bit, oh no, oh no, not good news. Um, but D.A. Carson is, is uh, I think, really helpful in describing this 32-33 force because this is what he says. And remember... Um, Whenever you become a Christian, uh, the Bible compares your coming to a Christian just like a human. You're, whenever you become a Christian, the Bible starts calling you, when you're first a Christian, a baby. And it says that you're, you're just like a baby and then you grow into things. And this is how this life of sanctification, this life of growing into Christ's likeness looks. You're, you're new and then you become more aged. So some of you... Um, seasoned. Uh, some of you are, some of you are <clears throat> brand new as Christians and you got saved last week or last year and you're still new to these things. And some of you are, you know, Christians for, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever. Um, but I want you to take that and remember that as we're looking at this, because when we hear this, we're like, Oh no, but this is what DA Carson says. It says this acknowledging before men will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity and frequency. So for all of us, it's going to, it's going to vary. Now this isn't, you know, this isn't just a, uh, an excuse to say, well, I'm still a baby, so I don't have to talk about Jesus as much. If you can think that way, then you should talk about Jesus more, obviously. But he says this will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer. And now here it is for all of us that were a little fearful. It says, but consistently to disown Christ, and consistently is the word, consistently to disown Christ results in being disowned by Christ. So it's not an outright, if you've ever done it once, you know, you're done. It's a consistent disowning. And if this is the pattern of your thoughts and life and practice as a missionary, then verse 32 and 33 are written in this particular way to give you a little bit of a jolt. That's not good news for me. That's the point of the, of the verses. So here's the, uh, here's the sixth thing I want you to see for <clears throat> the characteristics of a missionary is this. The missionary knows that they're going to have to speak of Jesus in the face of persecution. This is not a, a, a choice for us. This is a stern warning for Christians that whenever persecution comes, as a disciple... As someone who's following Christ, this is a part of being a disciple. I know that I'm going to have to speak for Christ. And if I have a continual habit of denying him, then there will be one day where he will be um, denying me. I will be disowned by Christ. Now, verse 34 says, do not think, and this ought to be a little bit like, what the world? Didn't Advent say something different? This is peace day. And this sounds a whole lot different than the verses Jack read. It says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. Wait a second. You just said in Isaiah that you were the prince of peace. Now you're saying you haven't come to bring peace, but you've come to bring a sword. Don't think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. Which one is it? This isn't like schizophrenic Jesus and he's switching back and forth. He makes total sense. And you've got to remember there are two different things. Um, if you remember, whenever we were studying 
in the Beatitudes, we saw in Matthew chapter 5, one of the Beatitudes was this. Um, 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And we talked about peacemakers. One of the things we realized is this doesn't mean peacemakers like, oh, you know, Frank, you're in a fight with Jill. Let me put y'all together and I'm going to, I'm going to help this out and be, it can mean that, but greater thoughts of what it, what being a peacemaker means is that you kind of stand before God and men and men who are not Christians are not at peace with God. And you want to be a peacemaker um, of the people who are not Christians with God. Therefore, you have a message to tell them the gospel. And if they put their faith in Christ, they are now at peace with God. So he is the Prince of Peace because he is the one who went to the cross and died and brought peace for men. So what is this? This these words about I've not come to bring peace to the earth purse. I'm sorry, bring peace to the earth. <clears throat> struggling here. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does this mean? This means whenever you're a peacemaker, some people will receive peace because they'll put their faith in Christ and they have peace with God. But then there's this other segment who doesn't. And in their view, you're definitely not a person for peace. So when Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, he's talking about um, this divisive nature that the gospel naturally will have in the lives of people. The gospel will be divisive in some ways. Why? Why will it be divisive? Because the message that when you tell people that are not believers, you're a sinner. You're a rebel against God. You, you, as a matter of fact, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 would describe you if you're not a believer. It says that you're a devil worshiper. These words are not usually received with love. And this does not bring peace. Now, When it doesn't bring peace, we don't say, so I have my sword and I'm just going to strike you down. That's not how Christians live. We have the message that we want them to be reconciled, be at peace with God and become a Christian. But the truth is, is that the gospel will divide. It will divide. Not only will it divide between friends, but this next verse says that it will even divide inside of some households. Look what it says. Um... Verse 35 and 36 give us an illustration that this this gospel may not even bring peace into some households. It says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies, look at this, will be those of his own household. Now, this is because they're following after Jesus. This isn't just to get people mad at each other over trivial things. In, in a home. This is because they're putting their faith in Christ, living out for Christ. And whenever other people in other homes don't believe that, then there's division. You, you can see this even in some pretty, um, pretty devout Muslim homes. There's a speaker named David Nasser. He's talked about whenever he was, he was converted from Islam to Christianity, he was the only one. And there was a lot of division in his household and things like that. So we've seen this naturally um, happen. As a matter of fact, 34 and 36 were already told to us that this kind of thing would happen right there in verse 21 and 22. One column over, same chapter. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father will, and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and you'll put them to death. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we can already see the telling of family division in 21 through 22. And here we see in 35 and 36 that even inside of families... That there will be division. Now, t- verses 35 and 36, 
are a direct quote of Micah 7.6. Micah 7.6. And um, what Jesus is doing by quoting Micah 7.6 is not fulfilling a prophecy. He's not saying that the division in your homes are fulfilling of the prophecy. Instead, he's taking Micah 7.6 and he's saying, there was division in families here, and I'm going to use that as a comparison here. And I know a lot of times we've looked at Old Testament uh, passages and Matthew's grabbing those as a, as a prophecy being fulfilled. But this isn't a prophecy being fulfilled. It's just a comparison. Um, that's just a side note. But anyway, um, so the, the seventh thing, where are we at? Number seven. The seventh thing I want you to see is this, um, is that the missionary knows that, that the world is hostile to them. The missionary knows that the world is hostile to him or her. Hostility sometimes even comes from their own family. This is a characteristic of a missionary. Now, when we hear this kind of, hear this kind of thought, this, this natural outworking that should be happening in the life of a Christian, if they're truly living a life on mission, that if there is people, there are people in your family that aren't Christians, that there should be sometimes um, opposition in the home. That can be a little scary. You know, like if your dad or your mom is not happy with you because you're a Christian and they're against you, it sometimes makes you want to not live for Christ. It wants you to be a little kind of soft against it. It may be that they're just, you know, don't care. They're just happy for you that you're doing something and that's why they don't oppose you. But it could be that they care a lot. But if you don't find opposition and you know that they care a lot, then you have to stop and say, the natural outworkings of that should be receiving some kind of something from them natural hostility from them and I'm not. I'm wondering if I'm really living as a Christian the way I ought. That kind of question should definitely hop into your head. Now, you'll see on this point number seven that I have 34 through 37 and I've only kind of unpacked or exegeted 34 through 36. I want you to see 37 because he kind of explains everything right here in 37. What he says in 34, 35, and 36, he kind of re-explains it there in 37. Look what he says. Whoever loves, this is what the explanation of what it means. Whoever loves father or mother, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter is not worthy of me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Why is it sounding like that Jesus here isn't pro-family? It sounds, it sounds like he's not very profound. I'm trying to divide up families. Um, the Bible does speak of family. He always speaks of husbands being good husbands, wives being good wives, parents being good, um, good to their kids and being Christ-honoring. So he's not necessarily, as he's doing this, trying to sound anti-family. Um, as a matter of fact, we know that if you're following Christ, then you will be super devoted husbands, super devoted wives, uh, because this is the things he calls you to. But what the point is this, is the more than me. That's the key phrase, more than me. And what he's trying to say is nothing in your life is to come in front of me. Nothing. I want you to be a good husband. I want you to be a good father. I want you to love your mother-in-law. I want you to love your father-in-law. But nothing is to come in front of me. Nothing is to come in front of Christ. Now, what I'm wondering here is this. When we hear the phrase, whoever loves father or mother more than me, Maybe that's, you know, not too difficult for you. But I wonder if for some of us, when we really examine our hearts, when we think on what might be some of the idols of our heart, if we could 
kind of stick in another phrase instead of father and mother when it comes to more than me. I wonder if some of you might stick in whoever loves career more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves um, their pride more than me. Whoever loves the idea of being greatly admired by others more than me. I wonder if there's a more than me in your own life. Whoever loves, you know, just outright sin, if it's sexual or if it's um, you have a lying problem or a gossip problem. I don't know. But if you examine your heart, I wonder if there's any of you here that say, I do have a more than me in my own life. And even that, that is not supposed to come in front of Christ. It's, it's pretty easy with the things that we're having victory over to say, Jesus, you can have all these categories of my life. I give all these things over and you can see you're having all this, this victory. But you know that there's other parts where you're like, except that. <laughs> That's the one thing you can't have. Um, I'm still, I'm going to work that out myself or I actually enjoy it. It's my, it's my pet sin and I'm going to keep it here and I'm going to love it and hold on to it and, and keep it. But that's not what Christ is after. He's not after, that looked a little weird, I know. He's not just after the easy things that are, that we should give over to God. That's not, that's not the point. I mean, following after Christ by giving him the things that are easy, um, that's not very challenging and that's not very radical when it comes to following Jesus. He wants us to, all the things that we think that we need to have, whether it's be admired by people, we have rat, wretched sin in our life, whether we feel like, um, sometimes it's just pride. You know that you need to go to someone, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friend, and you know you need to confess the sin and ask for forgiveness. And the reason why you don't do it is because of pride. These are things that we're talking about. There's a more than me, probably, in every single one of our lives. And if you have one, and it might not be family, he's still telling you, that you are to love him and treasure him and prize him more than these things in your life. Now, you should also see this little phrase, worthy of me. Whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his daughter or son more than me is not worthy of me. And he's going to take that worthy of me and he's going to also use it again in 38. Let's look at 38. It says, whoever and whoever does not, here it is, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. All right. What I want to do is go ahead and put up number eight for us. 30, uh, number eight is going to be verses 38 and 39. And we can see right here, it says the missionary, and we're getting this from this take up his cross language. Um, the missionary understands that picking up the task, and when I, what I mean picking up the task means picking up the task of being a missionary. If I'm going to be a Christian... That is synonymous with the word missionary. Christian means I make disciples. That, that They can't be separated. I have to be willing to tell people about Jesus. So if I'm willing to call myself a Christian, then I'm also definitely calling myself a, a maker of disciples, picking up the task of being a missionary. So missionary understands that picking up the task of being an evangelist or someone who tells people about Jesus is also synonymous with picking up one's cross. Death to self must happen. If you're going to say you're a Christian, then you're going to say that you're a missionary. If you're going to say that you're a missionary, then you're going to say, I have to be put to death. My desires, not physically, my, my desires, my ambitions, my goals, all those things are nailed to the cross. And Jesus's life now has been given to me. And this is the life I want to live. Now, a couple of things I want you to see here. Jesus says, 
take his cross. First, he says take. So it's denoting willingness. It's, it's not like, okay, if you're going to force the cross on me. But he also says cross. This is first century language. Jesus is using the word cross. And he, now remember, this is before he died. So the disciples don't know that he's going to die on the cross. Um, although he is coincidentally using the exact same instrument, which would bring his own death. Um, he says cross, and he's intentionally picking one of the most graphic, one of the most shocking, and one of the most horrific means by which a first century man could be put to death in order to drive home his point to his disciples. And he's telling them, take up your cross. It's like me saying, find the thing that is going to put you to death, pick it up, and put yourself to death. Kill yourself. Very shocking, striking language he's trying to use. But he's... He's not talking about physical death. He's saying, take up his cross and follow me. He's saying, your desires, your ambitions, you things you want to accomplish in life, all must be killed in order to follow me. So the missionary understands that being a missionary is also synonymous with picking up my cross. And if you don't pick up your cross, look what he says, and follow me, he is not worthy of me. And this is the third time he said this. And so I want to, I want to look at this phrase worthy of me and just kind of point out a couple obvious things. Number one is this. Um, I think I'm going to state the obvious here, but no one can talk like this unless they're God. No one here in this room can say you are not worthy of me. If, if anybody here started talking about people being worthy of them, they would be like, wait a second, who are you? You're not supposed to think you're worthy. Are you God? So only person that can start using this kind of language is God. And so you and I should never, ever say that. But Jesus does. And so maybe we're kind of familiar with this idea of Jesus being God. You spent tons of time in church and you know this kind of language. But I think it's a good exercise for us to kind of take one step back and just realize that a man, Jesus, though, he is, yes, he is God. A man is looking at other people and saying, if you don't put yourself to death, all your desires, you're not worthy of me. Worthy of me language should absolutely amaze us. So let's take that one step back and say, whoa, Jesus is saying, you're not worthy of me being my disciple. You're not worthy of hanging out with me and being in my presence. If you don't kill all your desires, no one can talk like that. I can't look at them and say, Hey, uh, put to death all the things you want. And you would, I'd be starting a cult or you think I'm crazy. And I'd be handing out Gatorade at the end of the service, um, magic Gatorade, but no one talks like that. So that's the first thing we need to think about is like, this is pretty amazing language that someone is going to say this. You're not worthy of me if you don't put all your desires to death. The second part is this. It's just the absolute demand for death of self. There's a demand here that Jesus is giving you. This isn't a great suggestion. This isn't get your life together over the next 10 years and then you can start following. I'm going to do that. This is a demand, an immediate demand. You want to follow me? Take up your cross. And this, this taking up is, is very willing. This isn't begrudging. This is willing taking up. This is what um, Spurgeon says. We are not to drag the cross after us, but to take it up. Dragged crosses are heavy. Carried crosses grow light. We are to follow after Jesus. As we follow Christ, we realize that the greatest joy we could ever have is following Christ. There is no greater joy than following him. 
and that's only realized as you follow him. As you willingly take up your instrument of death and follow him. And as we're putting to death our desires, our wants, our ambitions for the fame and the glory of his name, verses like this will become our heart's cry. Isaiah 26, 8 says this. Oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance or your renown, your presence, your spirit being thick in my life are the desires of my soul or the desire of my soul. These are the kinds of verses that echo through our hearts when we willingly take up the cross. So the eighth thing we see is that the missionary understands that picking up the task of being a missionary is synonymous with picking up one's cross. Um, now remember that this is all uh, an appeal to discipleship. We're, remember 20, 32, verse 32, that word so is a transition verse into discipleship. We're not, this isn't an appeal to gloom. Oh yeah, kill myself too. Persecution from others and I'm going to do it myself too. This isn't an appeal to gloom. This is appeal to discipleship. Notice what 39 says. Um, and this is, we're starting to make that turn because I know thus far throughout chapter 10, you've just been like, oh man, these things are just, <laughs> these are heavy dark words and I'm, I'm getting a little bit scared and a little bit nervous. People are going to kill me. I got to kill myself with my cross and my own desires. He's going to start making this turn here in verse starting at 39 and really 40 and on. And I want you to see it. Verse 39 says this, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. So if you find your life in Christ, the life you have before that, you'll lose Then he says, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses this sinful life for my sake will find it. You'll find true life. Um, One expositor I was reading said this, um, the truth kind of understanding this find, lose, lose, find scenario. Understanding, he says this, the people we thought were important right now will turn out to be of little importance in the kingdom of God. And the people we thought were insignificant here were turned out to be massively important in the kingdom of God. And this is the kind of um, this is the kind of kingdom that Christ has. Though we may feel and seem and be insignificant in this life, we won't be in the kingdom of God. Now we won't be greater than Jesus. I'm not saying that at all, but we can already start seeing some promises here if we're to put ourselves to death take up the cross, we can already see that's, that's a pretty good promise. That sounds good. So thus far, we're thinking, well, this sounds pretty gloomy. Why, where's the encouragement, Jesus? Why can't we get to some of that? Well, Jesus knows that. He's, he's the master expositor, the master teacher, and he's about to now, in verse 40 through 42, do it. You can see, mine's even titled in my ESV, Rewards. Little, there it is. Things are starting to look better now. And I want you to see in verses 40 through 42, the rewards that Christ is going to start promising. You're going to see um, four different people being described in these, in these verses. But you can see that there's a promise coming to them. You can see in verse 40, it says, whoever receives you, um, that you more than likely is the 12 disciples. This you, because he's speaking to the 12 disciples in this time. You. So he's talking about you, 12 disciples. And then 41, thus the one who receives the 
a prophet. So now he's talking about them. And then go right back out to the end of verse 42. Whoever receives, I'm sorry, the end of 41. Whoever receives a righteous person. So now he's described you, the disciples. He described the prophets. Now he's describing you, a righteous person who are Christians. And then in verse 42, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones. And so he's just talking about everybody there. So we can see a gradual receiving of four different kinds of people. Now, just as a, um, a heads up of how 42 um, is supposed to be kind of bookended with over in the very beginning of ver- verses 11 through 15. These two, 11 through 15 and 40 and 42 are kind of bookended with two different ideas. We see in 11 through 15 a receiving of people that's kind of thrown off. You can Let me read it to you. And whatever town, this is him sending out his, his people. And whenever they go, if they're not received, this is what happens to those people. And in first 40, 40 and 42, if they're received, then good things happen. But 11 through 15, when the disciples are not received, it says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Stay there until you, until you depart. As you <clears throat> enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But here we go. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone, here it is, will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house. Truly, I say to you, it will be, here it is, more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's pretty bad. If they won't receive you, it's going to be worse for them than it was even for Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's what happens to people who don't receive. But over here in 40 and 42, the people that do receive, reward comes. Look at this. Whoever receives you, disciples, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So now we've seen... A few times in those verses, these promised rewards that's being given to people. Not just those who receive, but even for those who are Christians that are living out the life of mission. So the last thing I want you to see, the ninth characteristic is this. The missionary knows that the righteous person's reward far outweighs any worldly rewards. So what is this great reward? We're living a life of mission because we want to see people become Christians. But we've seen there's also a bit of talk about reward. We see it in 39, where if we lose our life for his sake, that we'll eventually find it. That there's a promise in the kingdom that we will be important to Jesus. And we also see here that there's speak of rewards. What is this talk of a rewards? What is this great reward that's being promised to us? And I want you to see it. I think the great reward is right there in verse 38. Right there at the end. It says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not. There it is. Worthy of me. The great reward that we receive as being missionaries of Christ, which we will receive one day in heaven, is Jesus himself. I've heard John Piper describe it this way. Some people think of Jesus when they start talking about heaven. They say, um, I hope in heaven there's golf. Oh, I love golf. I hope in heaven, you know, there's lakes and swimming and and eating a lot of food and blah, blah, blah. And, And Jesus, if that's the case, Jesus is your little ticket that you punch to go through the turnstile in order to get to your idol. But that's not what's being described here. Jesus is not your ticket to get to your idol. Instead, the reward 
is him. You're not worthy of me. It's not saying you're not worthy to punch the ticket of me to get to your idol. He's saying you're not worthy of me. So Jesus is not the ticket we punch to get to our idol. Instead, entrance into heaven is entrance into the thing that is most prized in heaven, which is Jesus. The great reward in heaven is Jesus. The greatest thing about heaven is that that's where Jesus is. So it only makes sense then if for eternity in the future, what we will do in heaven is prize Jesus, treasure Jesus, enjoy Jesus, be followers of Christ and love him deeply. It only makes sense for what we're doing now to be what we're going to do there. If what we're going to do is prize Jesus, treasure Jesus and live for him there, then that should translate to our lives here. Our, our 75 years that you get here on earth, we should be doing now what we will be doing for eternity. If we're not doing now what will be for eternity, when we get there, that's going to seem pretty boring. But if we're doing it now, it will be the fulfillment, the consummation, if you will, of all the things we're doing now, trying to prize him, trying to treasure him, trying to seek after him, trying to follow him, trying to do everything we can as a missionary. When we get to heaven, it is forever, never ending enjoyment in Jesus because the great reward of heaven is Jesus. So it only makes sense right now that he's our treasure and that we live our lives for him now. Every breath. It only makes sense when we hear words like take up your cross. You're like, yes. And amen. Put me to death. I want more Jesus. It only makes sense when we hear verses that say, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. That's right. I don't want everyone to be exalted above Jesus. I want his name to be lifted high and me to be not me known at all. Just like John the Baptist. May he increase and I decrease. It only makes sense for verses like that. And it only makes sense that when we hear the missionary, the person who's a Christian is absolutely called to be a missionary all the time. If I'm going to prize him and live for him, then I'm going to be his missionary. I'm going to be a person that makes disciples. I'm going to have the natural outworkings of my life be that I'm telling people about Christ. Maybe the Lord's granting you to see salvation. And these things that we've been talking about, you, you know that persecution is going to come. You know that you have to proclaim it from the mountaintops. You know that death isn't final. You know that... That in the face of persecution, you're going to freely talk about Jesus. You know that there's going to be hostility in your family. You know that you're going to put yourself to death when it comes to your own needs, your own desires. And not only you know it's going to happen, you're going to want it to happen. Because your great reward is Jesus. And you want to mimic what's going to happen in heaven right now. Which is enjoy him eternally. Because... The rewards that we receive in heaven far outweigh any trivial, temporal rewards you might get here from something. You, you have success on a job, you get money. It's a reward. That's nothing compared to Jesus. Or whatever. Make, make any illustration you want. Any reward you get back is nothing in comparison to Christ. So if that's the case... As we go into our time of response, reflection, thought, prayer. Um, maybe you can think through these nine. Maybe you can pray through these nine. Maybe you can ask the Lord, where is it in your own heart that a characteristic of a missionary, these nine characteristics maybe isn't descriptive of you? Because here's the deal. 
Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he looks right then at his people and he says, The harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. Join me in having the same compassion I have for the lost. Join me. Feel that compassion first. Let it break your heart that people are perishing and spending eternally being consciously tormented. And when you feel that, say, Lord, I want to be a laborer. I want to go out there. The harvest is plentiful. There's tons. Send me out as a laborer. That's when it'll happen. So pray through these characteristics. See if the natural outworking is that you are pleading with the Lord to make you a laborer in this harvest. That should be normal in the life of a Christian. Now, here's the deal. If it's not normal in your life and you're a Christian, you're not condemned. God's not mad at you. We're promised that in Romans 8.1. If you're a believer, you are just as justified right now as the day you'll be in heaven. You're completely declared righteous, completely declared innocent. And some of us need to hear that. God's not an angry God at you. He's not like whipping you and telling you to get in order. It's our pleasure. It's our desire. It's our act of worship to get to be his missionary because we love him so much. It's an act of worship which we enjoy because we love him. So if you haven't been living the life of mission, he's not angry at you. You don't feel like, oh, he's going to beat me up and he's mad at me if I don't do it. You want to. So use these next times maybe just to think through and pray through and, and just dwell on this precious forgiveness that you received in the gospel. That even if you aren't living out a life of mission, that you're still forgiven. Wherever you are, I just want you to use this time to think and pray and stand the first song, second song, whatever. And worship. I'm going to pray and turn it over to Ben. And we'll, we'll worship together through song. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your word. I know, God, that <laughs> you don't need me at all. You have your word and you have the spirit. And that's all you need to convict my heart and all of our hearts. And so if there's places, Lord, where you've spoken, I pray that no one feels guilty, but they feel conviction. I don't want it to be something that I've said. I want it to be something you are doing. And in my own heart, Lord, I confess that there's places that I don't want to take up the cross. There are places that I'm fearful to take up the cross because I like the glory. Put that to death in me, Father. Don't let there be places where I want to receive glory over you. You are my king. You are my savior. And I am a lover of the king. A willing participant in your mission. Help me remember and receive that always. Be with my friends now as they worship, Lord. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.